Section 28 of Volume 1F of History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jim Dennison. History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688 by David Hume. Volume 1 F, Section 28, Chapter 68, Part 2. All these mollifying expressions had no influence with the commons. Every step which they took betrayed the zeal with which they were animated. They voted that it was the undoubted right of the subject to petition the king for the calling and sitting of Parliament. Not content with this decision, which seems justifiable in a mixed monarchy, they fell with the utmost violence on all those abhorrers who, in their addresses to the crown, had expressed their disapprobation of those petitions. They did not reflect that it was as lawful for one party of men as for another to express their sense of public affairs, and that the best established right may, in particular circumstances, be abused, and even the exercise of it become an object of abhorrence. For this offence they expelled Sir Thomas Withens. They appointed a committee for further inquiry into such members as had been guilty of a like crime, and complaints were lodged against Lord Paston, Sir Robert Malverer, Sir Brian Stapleton, Taylor, and Turner. They addressed the King against Sir George Jeffreys, Recorder of London, for his activity in the same cause and they frightened him into a resignation of his office, in which he was succeeded by Sir George Treby, a great leader of the popular party. They voted an impeachment against North, Chief Justice of the Common Pleas, for drawing the proclamation against the tumultuous petitions, but upon examination found the proclamation so cautiously worded that it afforded them no handle against him. A petition had been presented to the king from Taunton. "'How dare you deliver me such a paper?' said the king to the person who presented it. "'Sir,' he replied, "'my name is Dare.' For this saucy reply, but under other pretenses, he had been tried, fined, and committed to prison. The commons now addressed the king for his liberty, and for remitting his fine. Some printers also, and authors of seditious libels, they took under their protection. Great numbers of the abhorrers from all parts of England were seized by order of the commons and committed to custody. The liberty of the subject, which had been so carefully guarded by the great charter and by the late law of habeas corpus, was every day violated by their arbitrary and capricious commitments. The chief jealousy, it is true, of the English constitution is naturally and justly directed against the crown. Nor indeed have the commons any other means of securing their privileges than by commitments, which, as they cannot beforehand be exactly determined by law, must always appear in some degree arbitrary. Sensible of these reasons, the people had hitherto, without murmuring, seen this discretionary power exercised by the house but as it was now carried to excess and was abused to serve the purposes of faction great complaints against it were heard from all quarters 
At last, the vigor and courage of one stole of Exeter, an abhorrer, put an end to the practice. He refused to obey the sergeant-at-arms, stood upon his defense, and said that he knew of no law by which they pretended to commit him. The House, finding it equally dangerous to proceed or to recede, got off by an evasion. They inserted in their votes that Stowell was indisposed, and that a month's time was allowed for him for the recovery of his health. But the chief violence of the House of Commons appeared in all their transactions with regard to the plot, which they prosecuted with the same zeal and the same credulity as their predecessors. They renewed the former vote, which affirmed the reality of the horrid popish plot, and, in order the more to terrify the people, they even asserted that, notwithstanding the discovery, the plot still subsisted. They expelled Sir Robert Can and Sir Robert Yeomans, who had been complained of for saying that there was no popish, but there was a Presbyterian plot, and they greatly lamented the death of Bedloe whom they called a material witness, and on whose testimony they much depended. He had been seized with a fever at Bristol, had sent for Chief Justice North, confirmed all his former evidence except that with regard to the Duke and the Queen, and desired North to apply to the King for some money to relieve him in his necessities. A few days after, he expired, and the whole party triumphed extremely in these circumstances of his death as if such a testimony could be deemed the affirmation of a dying man, as if his confession of perjury in some instances could assure his veracity in the rest, and as if the perseverance of one profligate could outweigh the last words of so many men, guilty of no crime but that of popery. The commons even endeavored, by their countenance and protection, to remove the extreme infamy with which Dangerfield was loaded, and to restore him to the capacity of being an evidence. The whole tribe of informers they applauded and rewarded. Jennison, Turberville, Dugdale, Smith, Laferia appeared before them, and their testimony, however frivolous or absurd, met with a favorable reception. The king was applied to in their behalf for pensions and pardons, their narratives were printed with that sanction which arose from the approbation of the house. Dr. Tongue was recommended for the first considerable church preferment which should become vacant. Considering men's determined resolution to believe, instead of admiring that a palpable falsehood should be maintained by witnesses, it may justly appear wonderful that no better evidence was ever produced against the Catholics. The principal reasons which still supported the clamor of the popish plot were the apprehensions entertained by the people of the Duke of York, and the resolution embraced by their leaders of excluding him from the throne. Shaftesbury, and many considerable men of the party, had rendered themselves irreconcilable with him, and could find their safety no way but in his ruin. Monmouth's friends hoped that the exclusion of that prince would make way for their patron. The resentment against the Duke's apostasy, the love of liberty, the zeal for religion, the attachment to faction, all these motives incited the country party. And above all, what supported the resolution of adhering to the exclusion and rejecting all other expedients offered, was the hope, artfully encouraged, 
that the king would at last be obliged to yield to their demand. His revenues were extremely burdened, and, even if free, could scarcely suffice for the necessary charges of government, much less for that pleasure and expense to which he was inclined. Though he had withdrawn his countenance from Monmouth, he was known secretly to retain a great affection for him. On no occasion had he ever been found to persist obstinately against difficulties and importunity. And as his beloved mistress, the Duchess of Portsmouth, had been engaged, either from lucrative views or the hopes of making the succession fall on her own children, to unite herself with the popular party, this incident was regarded as a favorable prognostic of their success. Sunderland, Secretary of State, who had linked his interest with that of the Duchess, had concurred in the same measure. But besides friendship for his brother, and a regard to the right of succession, there were many strong reasons which had determined Charles to persevere in opposing the exclusion. All the royalists and devotees to the church, that party by which alone monarchy was supported, regarded the right of succession as inviolable, and if abandoned by the king in so capital an article, it was to be feared that they would, in their turn, desert his cause, and deliver him over to the pretensions and usurpations of the country party. The country party, or the Whigs, as they were called, if they did not still retain some propensity towards a republic, were at least affected with a violent jealousy of regal power, and it was equally to be dreaded that being enraged with past opposition and animated by present success, they would, if they prevailed in this pretension, be willing as well as able to reduce the prerogative within very narrow limits. All menaces, therefore, all promises, were in vain employed against the king's resolution. He never would be prevailed on to desert his friends, and put himself into the hands of his enemies. And having voluntarily made such important concessions, and tendered over and over again such strong limitations, he was well pleased to find them rejected by the obstinacy of the commons, and hoped that, after the spirit of opposition had spent itself in fruitless violence, the time would come when he might safely appeal against his parliament to his people. So much were the popular leaders determined to carry matters to extremities, that in less than a week, after the commencement of the session, a motion was made for bringing in an exclusion bill, and a committee was appointed for that purpose. This bill differed in nothing from the former, but in two articles, which showed still an increase in the zeal in the commons. The bill was to be read to the people twice a year in all the churches of the kingdom, and every one who should support the duke's title was rendered incapable of receiving a pardon by act of Parliament. The debates were carried on with great violence on both sides. The bill was defended by Sir William Jones, who had now resigned his office of Attorney General, by Lord Russell, by Sir Francis Winnington, Sir Harry Capel, Sir William Pulteney, by Colonel Titus, Treby, Hamden, Montague. It was opposed by Sir Leoline Jenkins, Secretary of State, Sir John Ernley, Chancellor of the Exchequer, by Hyde, Seymour, Temple. 
The arguments transmitted to us may be reduced to the following topics. In every government, said the exclusionist, there is somewhere an authority absolute and supreme, nor can any determination, how unusual soever, which receives the sanction of the legislature, admit afterwards of dispute or control. The liberty of a constitution, so far from diminishing this absolute power, seems rather to add force to it, and to give it greater influence over the people. The more members of the state concur in any legislative decision, and the more free their voice, the less likelihood is there that any opposition will be made to those measures which receive the final sanction of their authority. In England, the legislative power is lodged in king, lords, and commons, which comprehend every order of the community. And there is no pretext for exempting any circumstance of government, not even the succession of the crown, from so full and decisive a jurisdiction. Even express declarations have, in this particular, been made of parliamentary authority. Instances have occurred where it has been exerted, and, though prudential reasons may justly be alleged, why such innovation should not be attempted but on extraordinary occasions, the power and right are forever vested in the community. But if any occasion can be deemed extraordinary, if any emergence can require unusual expedience, it is the present, when the heir to the crown has renounced the religion of the state, and has zealously embraced a faith totally hostile and incompatible. A prince of that communion can never put trust in a people so prejudiced against him. The people must be equally diffident of such a prince. Foreign and destructive alliances will seem to one the only protection of his throne. Perpetual jealousy, opposition, faction, even insurrections will be employed by the other as the sole securities for their liberty and religion. Though theological principles, when set in opposition to passions, have often small influence on mankind in general, still less on princes, yet when they become symbols of faction and marks of party distinctions, they concur with one of the strongest passions in the human frame, and are then capable of carrying men to the greatest extremities. Notwithstanding the better judgment and milder disposition of the king, how much has the influence of the duke already disturbed the tenor of government, how often engaged the nation into measures totally destructive of their foreign interest and honor, of their domestic repose and tranquillity. The more the absurdity and incredibility of the popish plot are insisted on, the stronger reason it affords for the exclusion of the duke, since the universal belief of it discovers the extreme antipathy of the nation to his religion, and the utter impossibility of ever bringing them to acquiesce peaceably under the dominion of such a sovereign. The prince, finding himself in so perilous a situation, must seek for security by desperate remedies, and by totally subduing the privileges of a nation which had betrayed such hostile dispositions toward himself, and towards everything which he deems the most sacred. It is in vain to propose limitations and expedients. Whatever share of authority is left in the duke's hands 
will be employed to the destruction of the nation, and even the additional restraints, by discovering the public diffidence and aversion, will serve him as incitements to put himself in a condition entirely superior and independent. And as the laws of England still make resistance treason, and neither do nor can admit of any positive exceptions, what folly to leave the kingdom in so perilous and absurd a situation, where the greatest virtue would be exposed to the most severe proscription, and where the laws can only be saved by expedients, which these same laws have declared the highest crime and enormity. The court party reasoned in an opposite manner. An authority, they said, wholly absolute and uncontrollable, is a mere chimera, and is nowhere to be found in any human institutions. All government is founded on opinion and a sense of duty, and wherever the supreme magistrate, by any law or positive prescription, shocks an opinion regarded as fundamental, and established with a firmness equal to that of his own authority, he subverts the principle by which he himself is established, and can no longer hope for obedience. In European monarchies, the right of succession is justly esteemed a fundamental, and even though the whole legislature be vested in a single person, it would never be permitted him, by an edict, to disinherit his lawful heir and call a stranger or more distant relation to the throne. Abuses in other parts of government are capable of redress, from more dispassionate inquiry or better information of the sovereign, and till then ought patiently to be endured. But violations of the right of succession draw such terrible consequences after them as are not to be paralleled by any other grievance or inconvenience. Vainly is it pleaded that England is a mixed monarchy, and that a law assented to by king, lords, and commons is enacted by the concurrence of every part of the state. It is plain that there remains a very powerful party, who may indeed be outvoted, but who never will deem a law subversive of hereditary right anywise valid or obligatory. Limitations, such as are proposed by the king, give no shock to the Constitution, which, in many particulars, is already limited. And they may be so calculated as to serve every purpose sought for by an exclusion. If the ancient barriers against regal authority have been able, during so many ages, to remain impregnable, how much more those additional ones which, by depriving the monarch of power, tend so far to their own security? The same jealousy, too, of religion, which has engaged the people to lay these restraints upon the successor, will extremely lessen the number of his partisans, and make it utterly impracticable for him, either by force or artifice, to break the fetters imposed upon him. The king's age and vigorous state of health promise him a long life, and can it be prudent to tear in pieces the whole state, in order to provide against a contingency which, it is very likely, may never happen? No human schemes can secure the public in all possible imaginable events, and the bill of exclusion itself, however accurately framed, leaves room for obvious and natural suppositions, 
to which it pretends not to provide any remedy. Should the duke have a son after the king's death, must that son, without any default of his own, forfeit his title? Or must the princess of Orange descend from the throne, in order to give place to the lawful successor? But were all these reasonings false, it still remains to be considered that, in public deliberations, we seek not the expedient which is best in itself, but the best of such as are practicable. The king willingly consents to limitations, and has already offered some which are of the utmost importance. But he is determined to endure any extremity rather than allow the right of succession to be invaded. Let us beware of that factious violence which leads to demand more than will be granted, lest we lose the advantage of those beneficial concessions, and leave the nation, on the king's demise, at the mercy of a zealous prince, irritated with the ill-usage which, he imagines, he has already met with. In the House of the Commons the reasoning of the exclusionist appeared the more convincing, and the bill passed by a great majority. It was in the House of Peers that the King expected to oppose it with success. The court party was there so prevalent that it was carried only by a majority of two to pay so much regard to the bill as even to commit to it. When it came to be debated, the contest was violent. Shaftesbury, Sunderland, and Essex argued for it. Halifax chiefly conducted the debate against it, and displayed an extent of capacity and a force of eloquence which had never been surpassed in that assembly. He was animated, as well by the greatness of the occasion, as by a rivalship with his uncle Shaftesbury, whom, during that day's debate, he seemed, in the judgment of all, to have totally eclipsed. The king was present during the whole debate, which was prolonged till eleven at night. The bill was thrown out by a considerable majority. All the bishops, except three, voted against it. Besides the influence of the court over them, the Church of England, they imagined or pretended, was in greater danger from the prevalence of Presbyterianism than of popery, which, though favored by the duke, and even by the king, was extremely repugnant to the genius of the nation. The commons discovered much ill-humor upon this disappointment. They immediately voted an address for the removal of Halifax from the king's councils and presence forever though the pretended cause was his advising the late frequent prorogations of Parliament, the real reason was apparently his vigorous opposition to the exclusion bill. When the king applied for money to enable him to maintain Tangiers, which he declared his present revenues totally unable to defend, instead of complying, they voted such an address as was in reality a remonstrance, and one little less violent than that famous remonstrance which ushered in the civil wars. All the abuses of government, from the beginning almost of the reign, are there insisted on. The Dutch war, the alliance with France, the prorogations and dissolutions of Parliament, and all these measures, as well as the damnable and hellish plot, are there ascribed to the machinations of papists. It was plainly insinuated that the king had all along lain under the influence of that party, and was in reality the chief conspirator against the religion and liberties of his people. 
End of section 28, chapter 68, part 2. Recording by Jim Dennison, J-I-M-D-E-N-I-S-O-N, voice.com.